0: independence podcast is a conversation about the ria space hosted by austin philbin with friends and guests that include individuals spanning the entire spectrum of wealth management a high energy insightful creation this show aims to demystify many of the myths of financial services and provide insights fresh ideas and a true look into what it takes to be a successful wealth management entrepreneur Austin will ask the questions that need to be answered by any firm looking to drive scale, efficiency, and enterprise value. Welcome to the Powering Independence podcast. I'm your host, Austin Philbin, and today's episode is Hitting the Right High Note, a conversation with one of the founders of High Note Wealth, Michael Forrester. Michael is one of the founders and Chief Investment Officer of High Note Wealth in Deep Haven, Minnesota. Michael has both his CFA and CFP designations, and today's discussion will focus on his career trajectory and lessons learned from starting an RIA. Hello, and welcome to the Powering Independence podcast. I'm your host, Austin Philbin. And today, I'll be joined by Michael Forrester, who is the founder, president, and chief investment officer of High Note Wealth out of Deep Haven, Minnesota. Hey, Michael, how you doing? I'm great, Austin. How are you? I'm fantastic. I am very excited about our conversation today. Um, we have a lot of, of interesting things to, to talk about. If you would, though, um, humor me, And let me tell you about the only time that I've been to Minnesota. I I would appreciate that. Is that, is that okay with you? Yes. I I can't wait. Okay. So flashback 14 plus years ago, uh, I was in um, Minneapolis, Minnesota in the middle of the winter. I, um, after I graduated from college I moved to Japan. I lived there for almost five years and I came back to the United States. I went to back to my little hometown in Clinton, Massachusetts. And I started working uh, for a manufacturer's representative or as a manufacturer's rep for a small company called Big East marketing. And we had a manufacturer that we covered and their home office was in uh, Minneapolis. So we went out for an event. It was the winter time. I remember it was freezing absolutely freezing cold. And I remembered that they had the the covered walkways between the different buildings. And it was the middle of the week, there wasn't a lot going on. So I decided that I would go to the movies. And so I'm in line for the movies random, probably Tuesday or Wednesday night. And lo and behold, I look in front of me and I see some people that looked really familiar. And as I got closer to them, I realized that it was Steve Zahn and Penelope Cruz who were going into a movie at the movie theater in Minneapolis that I was at. And in, you know, the magic of Google, I look back and it was about the time that I'm referencing 2006. Wouldn't you believe that Penelope Cruz and Steve Zahn starred in Banditas, a 2006 western action comedy film? So... Two things that I remember about uh, uh, Minnesota and Minneapolis: one, that it was it was very cold, and number two, that I saw Steve Zahn and, and Penelope Cruz in the movie theater. So that's my story about uh, about Minnesota.
1: That's that's really a good story. <laughs> I was worried with the uh, the downtown Skyway. Right, we have the walkway, yes. so you don't have to be outside. A lot of people get lost in there, can't get their way back to the hotel or wherever they're going because it's not as as simple as walking outside. Um, but yeah, when you live here and it's as cold as it is, uh, you have to have such things, right? We're
0: built for it. Yep. Super cool. I had a good time. It was a, it was a good spot. I'd like to start at the beginning. When we decided that we were going to, to get together and, and, um, and do this, this podcast, I took a look at, at your background And you have one of the most interesting backgrounds that that I've seen in financial services. And so I'd like to start about um, maybe you telling me how you went from Le Cordon Bleu College of Culinary Arts, and I don't know if you recognize that French accent in there, but that was my best shot at it, to founding uh, an RIA. It's it's (laughs) quite the journey, right? And pronunciation was good.
1: You're right. I do have a very odd background, you could say. Um not the traditional path. I don't have any tattoos, but I've always joked that I should have started with what I was doing at the moment and just getting that sort of written on my arm and then cross it out and then what's below it. Um they all kind of lead to one another, but yeah, it's a little different. You know, I grew up in South Dakota, which is the wild west still right very out in the middle of nowhere small town uh sports were my life growing up right basketball and golf and didn't really give a lot of thought to what my career would be just kind of didn't look past it uh past college i guess um didn't have some grandiose plan and didn't really have a ton of guidance um you know, wouldn't trade anything that has happened, um, but I didn't really have sort of the pressure that we see today on young people to, you have to know what you're doing and where you're going to college when you're in seventh grade. Um, yeah. You know, it was different then, right? And I ended up going to college and got an actual bachelor's degree in history for some reason. Um, Was going to go into law school, I thought. Actually took the LSAT and was ready to go. Got accepted. Decided not to. Got into the financial services business while I was still finishing up college because my older sister Catherine, who's four years older, had gotten into the business. She had started um, with Northwestern Mutual and been in it for a couple of years, and I was actually licensed while I was still in college for the first time. Um, And it was a natural fit when I got done. Wasn't sure if I was gonna go to law school, thought about it, decided last minute, no, I think I'll make this a go, and tried it. Liked it, for sure, but it's much different when you're 22, 23, and working with people in your 20s. Um, It wasn't the, full-blown wealth management of an RIA that we're doing today. It was, it was a lot different, and it was a smaller practice. Uh, but I got a flavor for it. And I just kind of decided that I wanted to try something else. <laughs> I don't really have, like, a great reason. You know, right. I did cook a lot when I was a kid. Um, this was before the Food Network even. You could watch um, The Frugal Gourmet on PBS. That was about it, I think. Uh, And so I would mess around in the kitchen and kind of always had fun. I'm a bit of a hands-on type of person. And after spending about a year in financial services, I decided I really think I want to try this. So I enrolled in culinary arts school, left financial services, Mm -hmm. did that, ended up in New York working there, uh, loved every minute of it right, the art of food and sort of the physical nature of the job, but really determined it's uh, not for everyone from a lifestyle standpoint, right? Right. Um, You know, my joke always is, is that I ended up playing in a rock band later, and we did some you know, small touring regionally and around the country. And uh, kitchen staff of New York restaurants party way harder than any rock star could ever dream of. (laughs) Right. So, I mean, it is 100% adrenaline. I was there right after September 11th, and so staffs were a little bit smaller. But, I mean, we worked our tails off, got to meet a bunch of celebrities, got to eat and taste anything we could possibly imagine, Um, But the business itself, just grinding that out for four or five years wasn't really for me. I determined, hey, you know, I could uh, own a restaurant someday if I really want to be back into it. And so I came back to Minneapolis because that's where home was and um, had a conversation with my sister about coming back into financial services and We made a determination that it would be very beneficial for me to work in real estate for a while um, and share some clients back and forth, right? Get some real estate on the ground experience with real assets. So I started that path, ended up doing more real estate consulting than buying and selling after a while, but did that for quite some time where You know, a lot of my clients were her clients and vice versa, knew the same people, helped clients build up their own investment real estate portfolios, mini REITs, um, doing all sorts of commercial stuff, did some house flipping myself, right? Because I just couldn't sit still um, as I'm wont to do. And, um, you know, so we really had good... Sort of separate businesses that talk to each other but not pulled together and then after a while you know we had another conversation and just said hey I think it's time to let's pull this together let's really you know be a little bit more comprehensive this real estate experience is really helpful to a lot of high net worth people we can really make an impact and real estate gets a little thin." For me, right? You know, at, with this background, you can see I um, I have a lot of different interests, and as just a singular asset class, it got a little not boring, but I just didn't feel like I was really making an impact in people's lives, right? People like that. that are attracted to real estate will just ton, throw a ton of money into it. A lot of times, there's not a strategy for what the cash flow means, how you get out of it, you know, all that sort of stuff. It's just I've heard this is a good thing to do. I want to buy a bunch of it, and then it will sort itself out. So I wanted to work a little bit more on the back end of that. And so then we kind of pushed the business together, and I came back, had to get re-licensed, and um, here we are now. It's been another 10 years. Um, But, yeah, it's always changing. Right? I don't know. Maybe I'll go to law school still. I, I think about stuff like that all the time.
0: I love it. So one of the things that is, is really important to me as just a, as a personal interest item are the motivations and drivers for successful people. And so when we kind of re-summarize your background about being an athlete, uh, working in the kitchens of New York City, being in real estate, and now being extremely successful entrepreneur within the wealth management space, what are a few things from, I guess, best practices or habits that you've employed that allow you to be successful in those different disciplines?
1: Yeah, well, you can't just draw the correlation from cooking to financial advising. <laughs> right. No, it's, it is very different. But I there's I think some great things that I've learned and some pieces that I put together, right? So first, cooking is very detailed. Like you have to be ready um, and you have to lay out your things, right? The French have this wonderful phrase that's called the mise en place, which really translated means things in place, right? There's a reason that if you turn a cooking show on, and they have all the cute little dishes with all the ingredients laid out, measured, and then they can just dump them in whatever they're doing, that sort of preparation at the highest level of cooking is vital, right? And no, not at the Waffle House, right? You just get the order and you do whatever. But at fine dining establishments, you spend hours all day, Right? No patron anywhere around for hours, and we're dicing, slicing, doing all of this prep work, getting everything laid out for actual service, right? Then service is the performance, but you're doing all this work all day. That is really similar to what we do with planning, right? At the end of the day, particularly if we even think about what's going on right now, if we didn't have a plan for when things got out of control late February in the markets, we were in huge trouble, right? We could, you know, maybe make some differences on the margins here or there, but if we didn't have it laid out and ready to go, we were in big, big trouble, right? And so that concept of mise en place really is, do your work in advance, have it ready, and then it's just execution. So that does, I think, translate, right? I mean, I think that is something that I really learned. And in the kitchen, they don't tell you necessarily in a nice way, um, but they will inspect your your mise en place, right? Uh, Which also has to, you know, goes into your how clean does your station look, and what does it look like, and, um, you know, a lot of the people that I worked for, they would have no problem breaking out the ruler, and if they didn't like the, you know, the actual dimension of the chives, they would just throw it in the garbage in front of you and say, do it again, Um, right, that kind of sort of leadership is what you deal with in a situation like that. And so I don't try to take that approach with my people, but we do talk a lot about, you know, being prepared. What are some of the things that we can be set up to do? And what are the scenarios that could play out? And so I think that's uh, something that I really took. And real estate, you know, that experience, honestly, you know, so much of, of my odd background is really more important than anything I could have learned in becoming a CFP or going through the CFA process, right? It's life experiences. If you've never flipped a house, you don't know that much about it, and it can sound really good or really bad, but if you do some of those things and then you have clients that are interested and they say, hey, I own these properties, what should I do? Yep. You're creating that relation piece that they really appreciate.
0: I want to hone in on, on two separate buckets based on what, what you just said. Um, the first one is the illusion that you made between, or or the comparison that you made between fine dining and the local Waffle House. And not that there's anything wrong with the local Waffle House, but I think about it in the way in which you then took that and and had it be a parallel to financial planning, which is if it's done in a regimented and stringent way, then as an advisor and hopefully as a client, the people that are lucky enough to be your clients, the outcome are likely to be better rather than a mass approach to something that doesn't have the same type of rigor or stringency that would be expected from a fine dining or for someone who's really focused on planning. And to extend that point a little bit further, I mean, oftentimes we talk about the scalability of financial services. And I totally believe in that up to a certain point because the reality is that each client that you have has a very different story and has a very different set of needs and expectations in order to achieve whatever objectives they have. So I'm interested to, to hear more about how you take that, that same type of rigor that, that you may have learned from within the kitchen and bring it into the financial planning process. And I'd also you know, like to, to get your point of view as to whether or not that type of customization can be mass scaled, or is there always going to be this element of, of customization for each individual client?
1: Okay. Yeah, good stuff. Um... I think that, you know, we tell the story here that everyone needs their own plan because they're beautifully unique and their situation is completely and totally different, right? Yep. But a lot of the inputs are similar, and so – and that's part of what we're doing with this, you know, concept of mise en place where we're preparing things for a couple different dishes, and we're maybe finding symmetry Between them, right? Or we're maybe even preparing some things that aren't direct inputs into it, but it's just good to have. And so I think that there is some ability to scale um, by doing the prep work, right? So we we're overlapping a little bit on some of the things we're doing, um, and we can still present a unique plan. And the finishing touches, if you will, are very unique and some of the decisions that we're making. But a lot of the base level inputs are are the same across the board. And if we have them prepped, ready to go, meaning we know what they are, we're familiar with them, we can go to that place if we need to. You know, it's the same thing as having your parsley sitting perfectly in a little ramekin ready to go, then we're ready for anything. And so then I think we can still deliver that custom approach versus, you know, if we – and this is the same mistake, and now we're really getting into food, so hang on, right? But, you know, the the, the big problem with the amateur cook is – and this is what's so frustrating, and I get it – is you get a recipe, and you just follow the steps, most people, right? Because that's what it's telling you to do. And, you know, you have – half the things in the bowl and then you're in the claw cabinet trying to find the baking soda and then you're finding the spoon to get it in there and everything's just chaotic right it's not laid out and ready to go because it feels like an unnecessary step right the recipe doesn't say get all of these things in order and make it look like it's on tv um but there is like i said there is a reason for that um it's there and, and you can just access it anytime you want. Um, and then it's frustrating. And I think clients feel the same way, right? If you're in front of them and they bring up a topic to you, um, estate planning or insurance for estate planning or some investment idea, and then you talk about it and you've never addressed the topic before, you're kind of scrambling, right? Right or they don't have really a plan and they'll ask a question and then you're caught on defensive or you're not really showing them that you did the prep work. Well, we really try to do all of the prep work. We have checklists for all the things that anyone could need. Yes, they may have unique assets and unique needs, but you know, all the different steps that one might encounter and then we're pretty ready to go. And so I think my team at times, would probably prefer to do less mise en place. They would rather, you know, just do the plan or do the action. But we do quite a bit of have it ready, it's built, and then something comes up and we're ready to go.
0: That's great. The the second uh, theme that I wanted to to touch on a little bit and, and get your point of view is around what you stated about, for lack of a better term, authoritarian um, leadership or people that are very aggressive in their expectations, or even take it one step further, people that not only expect excellence, but when you don't deliver excellence, or even when you do, just to prove a point, they'll make sure that you know that you're, you're not that special. And it's a very aggressive sense of leadership. One question, first part of the question, even though you don't employ that tactic, based on what you took out of a situation in which you were subjected to that, you know, would, were there some benefits? And then number two, are we getting soft? Like, are we becoming too soft, right? As, a, as, a, as just a, an overall theme. And I'm not gonna, you know, go into how you would define that or, or how you answer that question, but I just know for me, myself personally, in the moments in which I've had those types of coaches, teachers, managers, mentors, et cetera, and maybe it's just my personality and we'll get to some other places where you and I align um, very closely, even though it sucked during that time and going through it, the lessons that I learned from those people have stuck with me. And there's certainly things that I think have influenced some some positive uh, behaviors or, or positive outcomes in my life. So two part question around leadership for you.
1: Yeah, I hate to be the one to say we're getting soft. I um but I certainly was treated much differently than than most of the experiences that I see today. I've tried to learn to discuss in detail my way out of it, right? Yep. Because I think about it this way, you know, part of the problem so absolutely like I grew up getting yelled and screamed at by basketball coaches, um, even working for my dad in the John Deere store. He was the type of owner that would just undress anyone at any time, um, you know, and then pick up your stuff and go back to work. Um, and, you know, I guess I turned out okay. Like those were really important. And I can laugh sure. now at some of the things in the kitchen that were you know, done and said. But I think that like one of the one of the failures of that model is expectations are not set at all, right? Yes. Particularly in the kitchen, it's assumed that you can read minds or assumed you know exactly what they want. Um. And almost they almost do it on purpose, I think. And maybe that's part of the growth model. Uh, like getting better at making decisions on what they might want, um, but if you're working for a very demanding chef that comes from that old school line, you don't get any detail right? Just do it and you know one of the, the my favorite things is if you know and I still make jokes all the time to people is you ask a chef how long to cook something, and they will say, until it's done, chef. Right? That's the detail you get. And the chef, when they say it that way, when they call you chef, they're doing it in a disparaging way. right? But that's the sort of detail, right? So it's very much that um, you can observe me, and I'm not going to go into great detail on what I want but you need to understand what I want. And so I think that, you know, I think there's something in between, right? I think it's okay to be pretty direct with people, um, but we also really have to be crystal clear with, here are the expectations. Do you understand them? Here's what we're looking for, which I think a lot of times in that is just lost.
0: Yeah, that's a really good answer. Um, I want to change gears a little bit you referenced earlier that you work with your sister, Catherine. And so therefore as an, as a natural byproduct, you're part of a family owned and operated business. And I'm assuming there are some, some pros or cons maybe, uh, to that structure. You want to talk about what it's like to, to kind of be in a, in a family run business?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, definitely pros and cons. I've owned a business, uh, you know, Without my sister and with my sister, so I can speak a little bit to it. I think the biggest pro is we're the only two kids growing up, so we've had a pretty close relationship our entire lives. And even though we, you know, particularly me, I went and tried a whole bunch of different things and have been into all sorts of stuff, we have a natural rapport and trust that is just hard, I think, to find with someone else that would be your partner, right? Yeah. Whether it's yeah. the sense when we're talking to clients of who's going to speak next, uh, being on the same wavelength and page and some of those sorts of things. But we do, at the end of the day, I know exactly, you know, to her core, all of her talents, All of her insecurities, all of her strength, everything, right? And I think that's very helpful because in the business, and we're in the service business too, um, it's just good to know who you're alongside, right? Nothing ever really kind of comes out of nowhere. If that makes sense, I mean, we got through all the disagreements and fighting stuff we were ever going to have when we were 10 and 14. Um, and so now we're just kind of friends and partners. And so I think, you know, that's really the plus, right? There's the unique nature that I think is attractive to clients that we're a family. Um, we get along when we're talking to family business owners, which is pretty common, right? Maybe there are partners with the uh, generation above or below. We can relate to some of those dynamics. So I think it provides yeah. some insight there. It's not a picnic every day, right? Because you do have holidays together and, you know, it's not just your partner, but then it's your sibling um, when, when the day is over, um, and so I think there probably could be some drawbacks. It's always been such a positive to me because sure. we just haven't had any drama, um, you know. So I think it's one of the things that makes us very unique and very strong together. Um, a lot of people, of course, you know, the most common thing we always hear is, "I could never work with my brother or sister." Um, right. You know, and we would have maybe said that at some point in our lives, but uh, no, we have great fun with it, and uh, it's been a fantastic partnership.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that comment would hold true, I mean, for people that don't, quote unquote, like their brother or sister, or don't get along with them, I mean, you probably wouldn't want to be in business with someone that you you don't enjoy spending time with, but um, you obviously do. I I think back to to Dynasty and, and our business, and, you know, five of us have gone to college, uh, together have, have been on, you know, the same kind of sports teams and, you know, have have known each other for 20 plus years, both, you know, personally and professionally. So the, the pros that you mentioned, um, I think ring true for us as well. I mean, it's different, your friends versus family, but, you know, to, to be able to have a relationship with someone that spans that period of time and then to, you know, work together for roughly a decade it definitely has a lot of benefits. And I think people that hopefully people like yourself that that have talked to us realize that, you know, that should be a plus working with people that you're friend with, that you've known for a long time. For me, the biggest, the biggest factor has just been, and I don't know if this is same with, with you and Catherine around transparency and directness of communication, you know, prior to to working where I am now, you know, I was in large financial institutions and sometimes it's hard to, to say exactly what it is that you're thinking or wanting in those places, simply because there's a hierarchy that kind of deters that, that type of direct conversation. And with us, it's, it's totally different. I mean, we're very, very open and very transparent about the strengths and weaknesses. H- how does communication work? Uh, do you think that it's more direct um, within your business now?
1: Yeah, that's a really good point um, with the bigger institutions and, the, you know, towing the line and having that. We had a little bit, you know, in our previous relations with Northwestern Mutual where it's almost two people talking to one and there can be some confusion there. Um, part of the appeal, of course, of, of Dynasty was when we met everybody, we felt like, yeah, these people all really get along and these are people that we can talk to. Um, and so that, you know, was just an automatic, easy button for us, but I, you know, I think the communication between Catherine and I is, yeah, I think you just kind of cut to what you're getting at. There's really nowhere to hide, right? And not that I'm saying that people are hiding at work, but we've all met the manager or the leader, that we don't really know them, right? Like they are the face or they're the ones that are in charge and they're your mentor or they're giving you your help or that's who you got to go to if something's going on and you don't really know them. Um, with with her and I, it's there's nowhere to hide, right? So right. good, bad, or indifferent, you might as well just say it and move on. Um, and so I yep. think it helps us get to... Uh, solutions faster I think it helps us make better decisions for the business for clients and so yeah, I think it's it's kind of there Um, you know it gets in the way sometimes of uh, me getting to hear just about what's going on in her life because there's only so many hours in the day and we'll be talking about business and that sort of thing Um, but yeah it's very much so straightforward nobody's playing any games because if either one tried, we would know exactly what they're doing.
0: Yeah. Yeah, no, it makes total sense. I, I, I feel the same way. And and that's kind of the environment that I wanna that I wanna be a part of. I don't I wanna be judged and held accountable to what I deliver and I don't want to to be in a place where getting by or hiding is is something that, you know, is not awarded or or even accepted. So I, I, I get what you're saying. Um, Interesting segue, you've spent, in terms of your financial services career, um, most of it, if not all of it, at Northwestern Mutual, which is an insurance company or which is known predominantly as an insurance company. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how your approach to, to client service and development has changed over the years.
1: At Northwestern Mutual, we got in on the ground floor. And that was really right before I had come over when Catherine had gotten into wealth management a little bit, their version of it. And we were discovering and learning, right? Part of me coming back was really taking control of day-to-day operations and then figuring a little bit of strategy and, and how we were going to make this work. And so we were really trying to emulate or I was I guess I was trying to emulate the RIA model where I just didn't think we could have 2,000 clients uh, cookie cutter approach I didn't think we could do the volume Um, I wanted to move up channel and provide higher level of service but we were doing it sort of in an environment where that's not common right that's not the path Um, You can sell insurance to people and not have this ongoing 20-year relationship where you need to touch base with them and and do other (laughs) things, right? You can have some transactional relationships. That never really worked for me. Um, I just kind of didn't really see the point. I mean, I get it. If there's someone that comes in and they need a certain insurance product or want to do just that work get it, but I wanted to really do the whole thing, right? Again, with that whole real estate piece and whatever they're doing, if they're on a business, I thought we could provide the most value by limiting the number of people that we worked with and really doing this higher level service approach. Now, it's tough to get there, right? And we were in a more of a volume Business where some of the incentives and some of the things, the way they set them up, you know, you're, they're wanting high volume. And so I was kind of bucking the trend, I guess you could say, the whole time with that, just thinking, yeah, I don't know if this long term is for me. Um, it, it, you know, and, but we never tried to make really any sacrifices. We did the best we could. We didn't have a lot of tools. We had to sort of make it up or learn some things and just kind of figure it out on our own. And, you know, we weren't able to necessarily send the client communication that we wanted to. We weren't really able to have social media presence. Some of those things that I think they don't necessarily move the needle for clients, but they let us know that we're working really hard, that we're doing things for them all the time, and they can see us, you know, what's a little bit behind the curtain. Um, And so I think that is really you know one of the things that was was missing is we were really trying to help the clients understand that it was it was Catherine and I at the end of the day that they needed to have a relationship they needed to trust because we are the ones that were really watching this and not so much you know you have this relationship with this giant institution and we just happen to be wearing the lapel pin uh, right today so you know, it was a bit of a struggle. Now we do feel like it's just a lot easier. Um, we knew the things we wanted to do, just couldn't really do them. Um, and I think they little things that add up to be a lot over a period of time, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah, it, it makes a lot of sense. And on on the flip side, I mean, I can totally appreciate why different institutions, whether it be Northwestern Mutual or you know other traditional banks wirehouses <clears throat> have have a certain model in which certain behavior is incentivized because that behavior not theoretically but actually would lead to better performance for the company which at the end of the day is the objective of the management of those companies i mean if you are the head of an insurance company or a brokerage or a bank your job is to ensure if it's a publicly traded company that the the value of those shares increase and that you're showing better financials and so you're going to be incentivized to promote behavior that does those things and when you think about what you're talking when you think about the 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 friction between a transactional relationship within financial services and an advisory or a fee-based relationship While there are places for two of of those types of behaviors, um, certainly, I think it becomes a challenge when, from a compensation schema, there's a disproportionate payment or fee that would incentivize for someone to do something that's not in the best interest of the client, which is when you move outside of those captive environments and you become an RIA and you're held to the fiduciary standard, From my perspective a lot of those conflicts go away and if you're able to clearly articulate to your clients or prospective clients why quote unquote it would be better to operate with us in this environment versus a captive it should enhance the relationship so i'm interested i mean you've recently transitioned out of northwestern mutual one can you tell me a little bit about the conversations that you've been having and then secondarily is is the, the the conversation around fiduciary overblown in the independent space, or is it is it actually something that comes up? How do you talk about it? I'm interested in your experience, um, you know, from a transition perspective and and messaging. Yeah,
1: that's a that's a tricky issue when you're in a spot. Um, the The experience that we've had was overwhelmingly positive from everyone that we have talked to right existing clients or new clients since the transition. Um, we didn't have any feedback that um, I don't like what's going on or I don't think that mate. I don't think that's helpful. Um, you know we were lucky that we were able to build relationships with people that they could trust what we were doing and what we were saying, and we were delivering, what they expected of us so that we didn't have to come in conflict with that fiduciary standard. Because sure. um, they knew we would always do the right thing. And even though we had the ability to not.
0: <laughs> right. If that makes yeah. sense. And so that's what that, so that makes a ton of sense. Yeah.
1: And, you know, I don't, I've kind of always wondered where that came from, I still haven't figured it out, right? Where the, you know, our mother was a hospice nurse for 50 years and so all, you know, she spent her entire life taking care of people and in a lot of ways I think a fiduciary is doing something similar, right? Where we're, we're shepherding this to the end. This, we're taking care of this plan. We're owning the responsibility of these decisions You know, part of it, too, is being a CFA charter holder. You have a pretty high standard that you have to meet. So I've always taken that very seriously where, you know, if there is a conversation that needs to be had, we'll definitely have it. But it's not something that should happen, I don't think. And it's a very slippery slope because if there is the opportunity to not be honest or to do something that's maybe in conflict. Mankind has told us over the last couple thousand years that there will be some that do that. Um, and so I think it's a bit of a slippery slope. Um, now it just feels very like there's just, there's no burden, right? Like we don't even have to even consider for a fact. Cause you would, sure, you know, you would carry it around a little bit. Like, I wonder if they think that there's something we're not telling them because we're not but you just don't know right um and now we know it's so straightforward and here's exactly what we're going to do and this is um how we look at the fiduciary standard and you know that everything we say is is what we mean and there's no anything else above that
0: yeah i mean and you've left an institution who derives you know, a, a a lot of their profitability from, you know, a, a specific solution or product set. And you talked a little bit in uh, your comments a few minutes ago about, you know, some of the, the benefits to, to being independent. Um, I wonder if you might just elaborate on it, on, on some of those things that um, when you look at your new environment, what are you excited about? Um, what are things that, you know, you see as kind of instantaneous upgrades and Uh, how that plays into your client service model and what you're excited about that.
1: Yeah. Some of the things, the list is pretty long, right? Access to anything and everything we want in the investment world, more or less. Right. I very much. So just as I'm diversified in my background, I'm very much involved in all things investment related and not even like tools that maybe others would want to use. I just like to see them. I'm just kind of a, hey, what's this do? Uh, What could I do with this? What are these options? I want to see the whole world before I make decisions. I just think that that's helpful to everyone. Um, So really kind of having the shackles off versus, and I understand how this works and why, right, when you're trying to scale it, but being told, here's exactly your toolbox. Now go build the house you want to be a little bit involved in going to the hardware store and picking out the tools. Cause that's fun. Everyone wants to do that. Um, so I think that's really fun. Um, really, really, you know, just solidifies what we have been doing and are doing. Um, but just gives you that reassurance that if something crazy happens in the world of investing next year, two years, three years down the road, um, there's no issue that we, you know, if we can explore it, use it, if it makes sense, whatever. That's really important, I think, because this is a fluid game, right? The, the way sure. we're managing uh, portfolios and clients today could look way different in the future, and you don't want to be told really what you're doing. I, you know, I think that's really important. The relationship, I think, is getting stronger with clients. Like I said, we we're lucky enough to really find the right people that wanted to work with us and we could build really good relationships and they trusted us. But we feel like we can be a little bit more ourselves now, potentially. Um, Just even more transparent, right? It feels a little bit more open and honest and loosey-goosey in a really good way. You know, no stuffiness at all. No, you know, they're... The good and the bad with that right is there is no big brother to blame it on right you can't say well they're working on that because it's a mess their website it's you have to own it (laughs) but we you know but we've always owned it right like that's what we really want we want that responsibility um and so if it's not right we know that it's on us um and we don't get to the convenience of just blaming someone else um So, you know, I mean, there's a million things that way. And I think, you know, as much as what we can do right now, it's that future potential where, you know, we could bring another advisor in. Um, That was a massive struggle, right? That just was not something that was easy to do. Um, And like I said, I don't, I mean, I'm planning on doing this for a very, very long time. And yes, things move a little bit slow in this industry, but I can imagine, you know, the financial world being a very different place in 10, 15, 20 years. And just knowing that there's no concern if we'll have access to that is very reassuring, I think, not just for us, but for clients.
0: Yeah, and that, that that for me has been one of the the coolest elements of being a part of Dynasty and then having the ability to, to be exposed to, to all the technological innovations within financial services. I mean, and I just moved, well, not just, it's been a year. I moved from San Francisco a year ago to Florida. And while I was there, I mean, I get to see a lot of really cool, cool things in terms of new technology. So as a bit of a futurist myself, I I totally agree. I think that the pace of innovation within technology across all areas, but particularly in financial services, is gonna have a dramatic impact in our ability and your ability to service your clients in a very positive way. And being able to capture that, that uptick from a client service perspective or just across the board um, from an efficiency perspective is really awesome. And to be able to do it with a lot of flexibility so if and when the right technology comes across um, the board, it doesn't take you know five years to implement because it has to be layered onto legacy systems. You can actually bring it in, test it, um, and, and bring it out to your clients in, in a much quicker cycle, which hopefully is the goal of technology—to be able to to be implemented in a way that's iterative, to enhance the experience of whoever the client is, and to do it in a way that's impactful. So. Uh, I think that the 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 conversation point around technology and the ability to utilize it outside of a captive environment is certainly thump, something that seems to be um, a major driver for people into into independence and owning their own business. The other kind of brief comment that I'll make when when you talked about being able to, you know, if something isn't work to to blame Big Brother or Big Sister, I look at it when people would ask me early on, At Dynasty, they say, well, what's it like working at a startup company? And I said, you know what? Before, if you're at a large institution, there are going to be days where you're you're walking on a tightrope, but you've got at least two or three nets underneath you. I said, when you're at a startup company, you're on that tightrope, and it's just about every day, and there's not really a lot of nets below you. So you have to be very sure of the decisions that you make because the wrong one can have, you know, pretty substantial impacts uh, on the company. But but like you, I like that responsibility. I like the fact that the decisions that one makes could have a very positive or potentially very negative impact on the company um, because I'd rather have it be influenced by the choices that I make rather than, you know, kind of play to the lowest common denominator of an institution with all these rules and restrictions in place um, that don't allow the top performers to be able to really do the things they need to do, because it's quote unquote too risky for the institution. I, I don't know if you felt kind of a any type of a burden being removed in that regard in terms of flexibility, but I, I'd I'd be interested in your thoughts on that.
1: Certainly, you know, and as it relates to clients, I think that if you are the representative. Well, and I'll just generalize, and then we'll, we'll get back to it. But if you're the representative of a larger institution, you have a relationship mismatch with the client, right? Because they're doing it all on their own. It's not their job, right? But they have to be 100% responsible for their financial success. They have to you know, decide who they're working with you know, make some decisions with maybe the help of others or doing it on their own. When you work for an institution, you have that mismatch, right? Because you're the advisor, but then you have this whole, is it the advisor? Is it the institution? It's just not the same, right? When you're more independent and you have fantastic safety nets like Dynasty, you're in more of a neutral setting, right, where, yes, you're doing it on your own, we're doing it as well, but you know that it's just us and we're a team, we're going to be very collaborative, Um, but there's not some sort of tower off in the distance that has any say in this conversation at all. And, you you know, you want to make a, a decision as a client, That's fantastic you can do whatever you want we're here to support it and we don't have to answer to anyone just like they don't have to answer to anyone Um, so I think that does that dynamic is very helpful for some right there are always going to be people that could care less the name or the face of the him or her that's the advisor for the giant institution they love the idea of there being a skyrise there being a marble countertop and you know this huge quote-unquote research team that has their back, um, right. there probably are people that are drawn to that. I think that a lot of our clients are drawn to the fact that you know it's much more unencumbered, seamless. They know exactly what we're doing, and and they're doing the same thing.
0: I agree. Yeah. Okay. So last question. Um, and I I held this one for the final question, just because I, if I'm being honest, was I've been excited about this whole conversation, but I'm very excited about this, this particular um, story. Prior to, um, to us starting this discussion, we talked about our shared love for mixed martial arts, which I think most people who have listened to this podcast before uh, understand is the, you know, kind of the all encompassing, jiu-jitsu, boxing, wrestling sport that's often uh, known as the UFC, fought in a cage. I think some of you know that I myself was a professional mixed martial artist once. But um, I heard um, a rumor that um, based on your your youth and adolescence in North Dakota, you actually not only um, spent some time with Brock Lesnar – but actually, uh, had an ish- and a scenario where you mixed it up with him. So, just wondering, can is that is that a true statement? What is your what what was your interaction with Brock? And then let's just uh, talk a little <laughs> bit about MMA. <laughs>
1: um, yeah, actually, be careful though. Um, be careful though. So Brock's South a big guy. Dakota, right? Often confused right. with North Dakota. Sorry, sorry. Um, South Dakota, right? The right. insiders know that there's actually two Dakotas. One's East Dakota, the other's West, because if you split them down the middle by the Missouri River, they make much more sense from what the people do and talk like and sound like. The West is really much more attached to Wyoming and Colorado and Montana, and the East is more to Minnesota. Um, Anyway, but yeah, small town, grew up 30 miles from uh, Webster, South Dakota, the home of Mr. Brock Lesnar. Brock was one year younger than me, so sure. played football against him growing up, and obviously my school wrestled against him, and um, I was a, uh, mm, I was very young. Uh, <laughs> that's when you know something <laughs> bad's coming, right? I was very young. Yes, um, great I with. was. Uh, a pretty decent basketball player in high school by South Dakota standards. And I could rub people the wrong way on the basketball court. It was just something I guess I did. I didn't really until it wasn't necessarily intentionally an, an aggravator, but I played really hard. And, you know, the, the couple of years before, sophomore and junior year, we had really good years. And I – You know, went into my senior year super excited and was planning on playing college and all this stuff. Um, And so, Brock, you know, you have that rivalry, right? Like, so one of my friends wrestled against him. They were the heavyweights, and they'd go back and forth and didn't like each other. Um, And so I was playing basketball in Webster, um, South Dakota, and having a pretty good game and of course, Brock's in the stands right there. And, uh, you know, I think it started with, uh, maybe bloom a kiss. Um, <laughs> then maybe, you know, hit a three pointer and waved at him, you know, some of those things <laughs> just cause you know, why not? Um, but sure enough, I, you know, got to the point where, uh, you couldn't take it anymore. And, uh, started coming down out of the stands during the game and had to uh be restrained from running on the court and it would end well I know that I probably could right. outran him <laughs> sure <laughs> uh,
0: what yeah. a great story what a great story <laughs> any any uh favorite favorite MMA fighter uh currently
1: oh i I love, Cub Swanson is probably my favorite UFC fighter, yeah. um, and I don't even really know why. He just seems like a really good dude that works really hard. Um, mm-hmm. Max Holloway, I can't not watch him do anything. Um, I'm just a massive fan of the sport, and I came to it a little bit later than I should have. I was a big, big boxing fan growing up, and all throughout my 20s, and... Really just loved boxing, um, and so I wasn't you know as involved in uh, following the sport you know around the days of you know when all the strike force guys came over and all that sort of stuff. Um, but I've went back and watched almost anything, and now you know, I just think it's one of the purest sports imaginable um, Two right. people uh, in their best shape of their lives, adding tools every day, all day, trying to get better, and then seeing what happens. Uh, so I just absolutely adore the sport. Um, I appreciate how impossible it is, and I, I have to hear your stories. I can't even imagine what it took for you to get to where you did. Um, hats off, because it's just, it's unbelievable to me what you have to even sort of the craziness you have to have to think you can get in the cage. And then, um, you know, all the dedication, all the work, all the skill sets you have to pick up. It's just phenomenal.
0: Yeah, I will say that at the time period which I was in, it was obviously a a much different sport. Um, It it was nowhere near uh, the popularity that it's become today. The last year was the the first season of the Ultimate Fighter on Spike uh, TV. And so that's <clears throat> when the um the finale between Stefan Bonner and Forrest Griffin kind of re-energized the sport and propelled it, I think, in many ways to to what it became today. But what I would say about it is the time that I spent, I made some of the the best friends that I've had in my life, um, only because if you can imagine, know, there's a level of trust that you have to have with the people that you're, you're practicing training, sparring with, because they need to be around for the next day and the next day. And in terms of why, or, or, you know, oftentimes when, when people meet me, they're like, I can't imagine you doing something like this. And, you know, even you use the word crazy, which I think there has to be an element, maybe not crazy is, is a, I think a, a valid adjective for a lot of people, but Um, for me, it was just the one thing that I've done, uh, physically in my life where there really can't be a disconnect between the mental concentration and the actual physical activity. So when you think about lots of different sports, whether it's, um, playing basketball or running or, you know, lifting weights, you know, after you get outside of your, your collegiate competitive, or even when you're done, you know, as a professional athlete, <clears throat> you look for things in which you can can find that connection that you have to be fully invested in. And for me, that mixed martial arts or just martial arts in general. Love boxing, love kickboxing, love wrestling and jujitsu. And you know, I, I was really fortunate to be in in the sport in a time when, like I said, it was at the beginning. So it was it was a smaller group of people, like the celebrities, like Randy Couture and some of the others that were the pioneers of the sport. I mean, they're very, um, they're, they're able to, to be connected to, and even now today, you know, I still have really good friends that are still professional, um, mixed martial artists that, you know, they're just some of the nicest people that, that you'll meet. It's just, they're incredibly good at, at fighting. And so it's an interesting part of, you know, my personal story, like you, I, I like to look at the different things, you know, that I've been fortunate to do in my life and I like you did not follow a linear path to to where i am and i find that that part of my life the you know the the martial arts and i continue just to kind of practice nowhere near as seriously as i did before is where i've met some of the the people that i have the closest relationships to so it's it's been a good a good thing for me so
1: that's uh, that's wonderful two really quick follow-ups on that number one I say crazy in the most <laughs> endearing manner possible. Yeah, yeah. I—that's my kind of person. I—I I mean, I didn't have the chance, and it's easy to say, "Oh, I would have done it if I had the chance at,", at you know, at a younger age. Um, but no, I—I I absolutely love it. Um, I'm that type of crazy. I mean, I—I uh, I was picking a fight with Brock Lesnar <laughs> on a basketball court when I had zero chance of winning. Um, and the other thing is—is, is, you know, that's really what. I think, you know, such a unique aspect of it is, yes, you're wearing shorts, but you are so sure. naked in there that, you know, back to that mise en place and that planning, if your jiu-jitsu isn't good enough and your defensive wrestling isn't good enough, there is no avoiding it, right? It is going to get exposed, mm. maybe not that first couple seconds, but ultimately it will. And, you know, you get to see really quickly who has done their homework and who hasn't and who is getting better because there's nowhere to to hide. hide. Right. And so, you know, I don't care how good you are at striking. If you're fighting Khabib, he's going to get you down. And can you survive? um so i that I think that is really fascinating to me versus you know the team sports you can have a really good basketball game, you can run plays and work on some things, but you know you're kind of doing the same thing right whereas this is so segmented in the disciplines and how they flow that just the matchups alone are fascinating
0: yeah, and the last point is it it brings a true sense of humbleness or I think it brings a true sense of humbleness to people because just the ability to put yourself out there and to to suggest that you're willing in front of a group of people to to give your best and oftentimes that best isn't good enough and it's very clear in most cases besides the the decisions like who the winner and who the loser is. And so it's, it's kind of a black and white thing, which, you know, requires some level of humility in order to get better at those various disciplines. You have to be willing, um, you know, to put yourself out there and try those things. And also while you're doing that, you're going to be getting beaten up while you're trying those things. You know, I was naturally a better striker. So it was harder for me to, you know, if I'm being honest with myself to embrace the wrestling in jujitsu and and you know i i I think i made the right decision but i got to a point where i realized like i'm not going to be able to pull those level those parts of the game up to a level where it's going to be meaningful from a professional standpoint and um you know there i have like you the the utmost respect for those that have stayed within the game 10 years later and who have continued to hone their craft and practice and become some of the, you know, the more popular people within the sport, whether it is from uh, a coaching perspective or just, you know, individuals. So it's been very fun to kind of sit there and be a spectator and cheerleader for those people. And they've earned it. You know, they like the the story that you mentioned about grinding out in a restaurant for five years. I mean, these people have been doing for, for 10 years, and it's great to see them finally start to have some real success, both from, you know, popularity perspective, but also uh, from a monetary perspective,
1: do we still got to get them paid more? It's right. absolute travesty, I think, how much they don't get paid for what it takes to do that. Um, but at least trending in the right way, right?
0: For sure, Michael, I've really, uh, I've really appreciated this discussion. Thank you for uh, for spending some time with me today. My pleasure. Thank you. I'm happy to do it you for joining us on the Powering Independence podcast. And a special thank you to Michael Forrester. Really enjoyed our wide ranging discussion from mixed martial arts to high end food. As always, stay tuned for our next podcast.